Hello, this is the Science of Fiction on CAMFN, and I'm Andrew Holding, and today is we're going to cover everything Doctor Who related, so get your sonic screwdriver ready. Coming up, we have another instalment of Weird Science, where I'll be looking at the, a couple of strange news items of the week, and uh, please do let us know if you have any questions for us, Science or Doctor Who related, on f- Twitter as at ThinkOutreach, on Facebook, facebook.com slash ThinkOutreach, or via the online player. My guest today is Michael Conterio, and uh, he actually was the person I did my first live radio work with, I think, or at least he taught me how to use his station, and uh, he's a physicist at the University of Cambridge. Would you like to tell us a little about the work you do? Uh, I'm actually based in the Semiconductor Physics Group. We, I work at the Department of Physics in Cambridge and also with Toshiba at the Cambridge Research Lab. And what we do is we look, we're looking at ways to use semiconductors as single photon sources and also as, uh, and, and, and also as um, possibly um, elements in a quantum computer. That sounds really interesting. So how long have you been working on this and have you had any recent discoveries, breakthroughs? Um, I, I've been, I'm actually in my third year of PhD now, but uh, one thing that I have been, one thing that my group has been working on is we've been uh, trying to work out if we can create entangled photon pairs and what one of my uh, landmates, Cameron, has um, had a paper out in Nature ab- about this successfully creating a double excuse me successfully creating um, a pair of entangled photons from a quantum dot which is a tiny blob of one semiconductor embedded in a different semiconductor so what other applications do quantum dots have? one thing that we use them for is producing photons but we've also used them as spin memories which means that they can actually store a qubit which is sent to them via circularly polarised light and is then stored in there as an electron or a hole, which is a hole is basically an absence of an electron where you expect one, with a certain spin, which is like a quantum mechanical property. And then later the light can be emitted and then we can tell what light actually went into it in the first place. So will we be seeing these in our computers as memory or something like that in the future? Um, Spintronics is something that quantum dots can be used for and that's something that people are talking about computers going into because you can manipulate spins faster than you can move electrons about and at the moment it's all based around moving electrons but in terms of the quantum computer side of things that's not something that we're expecting to see for a while and it's not really the sort of computer that you'd actually want to play games in at home it's very very specific problems like factorising extremely large numbers very quickly or solving problems where you've got so many different routes you, it's, you can't actually look at them all in a sensible time with a normal computer but with a con- quantum computer you can look at every single route in one go so it'll be a lot quicker and allows us to solve many different problems. If I remember correctly that's all parallel processing is the sort of thing you want if you're going to crack c- encryption and things like that so it's got very big military applications I suppose. Uh, yeah that, that's what I, that's kind of partially what I was talking about with the prime numbers and the fact factorising those that's what that's involved in crypt- lots of cryptography. Okay well that's really interesting uh, the first track I've got today is well it's by a band I have a uh, real like for uh, it's got a bit of a slow intro so I'm just going to introduce it a bit at the beginning but this track I know when I listened to it once doing my origin for my uh, it was for my finals I noticed there's a very short bit which if you get the live version is much much longer which has a very big relevance to the show so I hope you enjoy it
And that was One of These Days by Pink Floyd. And for the people who didn't hear it, halfway through that, about three minutes in, there's a Doctor Who rift, as it were. It's, it's quite interesting. It caught me completely by surprise when I was um, doing my revision one day and I noticed it. And actually, it's quite hard to hear if you're not... If you actually try and listen for it, I find it really difficult to hear. But when you're sort of subconsciously looking away, it grabs your attention. And quite often, if you catch a live recording of that, you'll find it's a... Uh, much more pronounced and they make a big thing of it because well it really it isn't just a coincidence that they really were doing it and they wanted i think a bit of fun in their live sets and i think pink floyd are renowned for doing very fun live sets okay so michael i know you've got a few things planned for us today and as the resident physicist i thought i believe the first thing you were going to discuss was time travel which of course is probably the staple diet of doctor who yeah, um, the interesting thing about an awful lot of the laws of physics is that they don't actually specify which direction time is going in. And 
like according to like the lo- lo- if you look at Newton's laws of motions, like how forces act on on particles and how how they then accelerate because of this, there is actually no reason that, for example, uh, a cracked egg that that, that you've just vault scattered everywhere. There's there's no reason why physics couldn't like, effectively reverse time and just create an egg from bits of shell, apart from the fact that we have what's called the arrow of time and this is something that like philosophers of science actually discuss and debate about it's very much still an open question as to why this is but what this basically says is that time flows forwards in such a way that the entropy of the entire universe increases so that means that everything's going to end up getting more disordered so every time an egg cracks it ends up in lots of pieces you can't spawn well it's very unlikely for it spontaneously to come back together. Yeah, one, one, one reason that this confuses people sometimes is that we talk about entropy as being disorder, and that's not technically what it is, but it's a very good like approximation to it. But it's very important that it's the entropy of the entire universe that has to always increase. So, so you can get some things like um, self-assembling nanostructures where you, you effectively just put your, whatever, your, your nano devices in some sort of liquid and a lot of the, sometimes you can have ones that say all stack up together all form nice patterns and you think that's becoming more ordered but in fact all the disorder that's increasing is in stuff that you can't actually see with like exchange of heat and, and the like so a really simple version of that is when you freeze water uh it's obviously comes ordered it comes as big crystal lattice but the freezer will be pumping out quite a lot of heat to actually cool down the ice. So overall, the universe, the entropy is increased, but the ice cube, it's decreased. Yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. So that chemistry degree did come in useful. Yeah, um, but also, like, the, the other thing is the laws of physics don't technically um, ban time travel. In fact, s- some people almost think that, if you've heard of antiparticles... Well, yeah, I mean, the antimatter is quite a uh, common thing, at least in sci-fi. Yeah, um, all, all, all basic building blocks of the universe, like electrons and protons and neutrons, have their own um, antiparticle. Which, of course, is one thing that's really interesting about the discovery of antiparticles is they were predicted through maths, not through experimentation finding them. And when they were first discovered, uh, the scientist who found them actually tried really hard, thinking he'd made a mistake, to um, correct his maths to remove them, but couldn't. Yeah, but um, the interesting thing about these is that in particle physics, when you draw what are called Feynman diagrams, which are a really nice, elegant, simple, straightforward way of drawing what are actually quite complicated physical processes, it looks just like a couple of squiggly lines and a couple of straight lines with arrows on, and that's that can actually cover an awful lot of physics, like what's going on in, in the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. But if you look at these diagrams, all the antiparticles can, can all look like they're being treated as particles travelling backwards through time. So they're exactly the same as the forward through time one, then they're just going the other way, so they appear, they interact reversely. Yeah, so um, if you if you imagine like you've got two positive charges, um, which would normally um, repel, well, it, if you've got now got one of those positive charges being an antiparticle coming backwards in time, then if you're going, if you had two positive charges going backwards in time, you'd see them move closer together, like they were attracting each other. So now, if you have what both going for, in normal time, you have a particle and an antiparticle. The antiparticle now appears to have the opposite charge, so you get the two particles actually being attracted to each other. And that 
from what you're saying is perfectly rational in the physics world, even if it seems totally balmy to the person on the street. Yeah, that's that's entirely reasonable. Um, there are other theories about um, ways that you can calculate what's going to what, what should happen to a quantum system by effectively working forward from now and also almost almost looking at signals coming back through time and then basically where those meet you have something that can actually physically occur but it's just whether or not that's actually anything to do with what's actually happening or just an, an, a nice mathematical way of calculating is another question yeah well the the really great though thing about the arrow of time is it well it's actually quite sad but it is that it allows us to know what's going to happen to the universe. We can predict it. And what we know is, slowly over time, all the stars will slowly die. And this is because as they burn up fuel, it's never going to reform as fuel. It's never going to be burnt again. And this brings us to a situation that sometime in the future, most of the stars will have been burnt out. There'll just be the few... I think in the end it's the red dwarfs, finally at the end. And... Uh, there was a great comment by Professor Brian Cox where he said he can imagine in a fu- very, very distant future, this is billions of years away, that we'll be huddling around these red dwarfs just trying to keep warm, like people huddled around campfires in the history of man. And then when we go past that, those stars will eventually fail. And a while ago on the modern Doctor Who, not the original series, there was an episode called Utopia. And it's one where John Sims first turns up. And... The TARDIS accelerates them to what the Doctor says is the furthest point in the t- timeline of the universe anyone's ever been, because it's trying to run away from one of the other characters. And they end up on a planet with no stars. And that is the end, the last place where the human race is hanging out, because all the stars have gone. And it's that sort of thing, I think, about good sci-fi, is they draw on real things and use it to bring this terrifying idea of living in darkness and there being nothing there because that is where the well, it's the end of the livable universe. Uh, the universe will go on for quite a long while after, but there'll be no light, there'll, it will just slowly, the final remnants will decay away yeah, and Another thing that's come up on the, the show recently which I believe, I'm not 100% certain of this, but I believe isn't banned by the laws of physics is what, what they call a stable time loop, which is which was seen in the um, finale of last last series, where the Doctor came back from the future t- and um, effectively caused the events which led to him coming back from the future. And in that case, it's almost as if some things have appeared out of nowhere, which mean that loads of people have objections to this and say, look, this can never happen, you're producing some ideas out of nothingness. But... Uh, I don't believe there's any actual physical law to stop that from happening if you can travel back in time. So is that? So this is where we get to the point where we actually have to do the experiment and we have to build a time machine. Yeah, I mean the, the one that um, has been suggested um, is if we can manage to find a wormhole somewhere or create a wormhole, which is basically a, effectively a bridge between two entirely separate points in space, and um, basically attach one end to a spaceship and fly that off at such a large proportion of speed of light you start getting relativistic effects so the time experienced by one side is different to the time experienced by the other side and therefore entering the wormhole in one side coming out the other as you're effectively ending up in different times uh that is really strange and yeah for just to explain to people who might not understand relativity 
what this was what Einstein came up with. This is a really weird fact that came out of the science in the sort of earlier 20th century that they had all believed in this thing called ether, so there was something that existed in the universe to carry light, like waves go through water. And he managed to basically come up with the conclusion that you could get rid of the ether and it didn't need to be there. But in doing that, he ended up with a load of other problems to solve. And one of the things he finally came to with his thought experiments was that as you approach to the speed of light, time slows down. The other weird one is, depending on what gravity you're in, time slows down. And more recently, we've had the ability to check these by flying atomic clocks very fast. If you have a GPS system, uh, that's so satellites around your planet, as we do, then they're moving quick enough and they're in a different gravitational field. So for your GPS to work, it all works by clocks, it has to put correction in for the change in the speed of time, depending where you are. And otherwise, your GPS just wouldn't work. There's actually been another... I'm not sure whether you were playing on... I assume you were, but there's actually been a new test of um, Einstein's theory of general relativity that's just... the results have just come in, effectively. Isn't this an experiment that's been conducted over 50 years or something Yeah, like um, well, 50 years ago I think they started putting the experiment together because the actual stuff that they needed to run the experiment um, in, in, in this probe that we've sent into space and has been orbiting around the Earth, um, they actually created the, the most round objects, most spherical objects we've ever, ever created. And so a lot, a lot, a lot of work has gone into that sort of thing. And it's taken a while for that, and it's taken a while for them to uh, pick up the data and check the data and everything. But now, uh, as far as we can say, we can't prove Einstein wrong. But, I mean, that experiment, the thing which well, it was proving was... As the Earth rotates, Einstein predicted that it would drag space-time with it. So you'll see your object orbiting dragged round with the Earth. And it's a really, really slight effect. But that's what they managed to prove. And to me, that is just weird, because... I Normally, when we try to explain space-time and gravity, we talk about a bowling ball and a sheet of rubber and how it bends down, and that's how it causes everything to curve round and roll in. But... When you start talking about it twisting that, those analogies get blown out of the water. And I think at that point, you just have to start accepting the experiment worked and you have to just rely totally on maths. Yeah, I, I did hear one an analogy which was effectively like the Earth was a spoon spinning in the, in the tea of space-time. And it was like, uh, as the spoon spins, the, the, the tea rotates around it as well. Yeah, I mean, that helps, but then you start wondering how far do we take yeah. what the tea is anyway we will continue this discussion right after this next track
look good on the dance floor by the arctic monkeys uh, so welcome back to the science of fiction and um well our next topic is going to be daleks uh, just to remember, remind you if you have any questions or anything to add to the show please send them in through the live player through twitter to at think outreach and on our facebook page or the event page on facebook so daleks are quite interesting well i think they're interesting partly because we can get into squidgy biology stuff here which is a bit more my realm than more hardcore physics. So, the Daleks are probably the Doctor's greatest enemy. I don't think anyone's going to complain about me saying that. They might just about be competing with Master, but there's only one of him. There's lots of Daleks. And the Daleks are actually quite interesting. There's a lot of different stories within the Doctor Who sort of literature and movies and stuff how they where they came from but the the main one as far as i understand it and feel free to send in with your corrections if you are a doctor who fan with a particular knowledge about dalek genesis uh is that the daleks well a race called the kaled uh which you notice is word dalek backwards they were in uh had a thousand year war with another race on their planet of called skyro and skyro basically was suffering really badly from nuclear, biological and chemical weapons. So the nuclear weapons were providing radiation. Biological weapons were would be things like viruses and bacteria actually made to kill the other side. And then the chemical weapons would be your sort of chlorine, sarin gases, things we've used in this world, depressingly. And all those things together meant that they were really heavily suffering from illness, from mutations, and that was changing how they were. Now, one young scientist apparently authored a paper on Skyro and suggested that, but since both sides were fighting so hard for resources, that the only way to resolve this problem was the Dalek solution. Now, I just love the idea that they actually have a scientist who authored a paper in this. It, it, this is just such a reflection on mirroring our society where a scientist is authoring papers. It's not a magical scientist in a lab so much. But Davros, who... You'll probably, if you've seen any Doctor Who, you'll know who Davros is, but he's the one who appears 
leading the Daleks in a few episodes what, in the recent series, and in the old stuff he appeared a lot more. And he apparently went to the Scientific Council and stole the paper and claimed it was his own. And then he went... He's not a very nice guy, so he went and managed to get some legislation so he could experiment on children. And at the same time, he put the brain of one of the enemies into one of his transport machines one and these would eventually become the Daleks uh, but why he needed these were because if you see the more recent sort of current Daleks you'll see they're quite green squidgy things inside a machine pulling levers and this is because they suffer so much mutation so many things have changed to their genetic code they're no longer a healthy fit individual and they need the machine to keep them alive but the other thing is, what Davros did was he took away by mutating out certain emotions. And we know this happens because in our population we find people who have certain emotional problems. And some of those can be genetic, some of those can be how you're brought up. And in the case of the Daleks, we can assume it would be a bit of both. You know, I don't think a mummy Dalek and a daddy Dalek are renowned for their input in a growing Dalek's life. And I, I mean, I find this incredibly fascinating. I mean, someone should do a study on Dalek life. Um, so I mentioned earlier that Davros got permission to sort of kidnap these children through a back route I mean they didn't know what he was going to do with them and that's one of the reasons why they lacked any pity is because he was using children in the Daleks in their brains so they didn't have the proper emotional growth that you and I would have uh, w one thing that I um, remember reading about um, in terms of, kind of emotional growth and like is something called theory of mind which is it's kind of possible that they didn't have which I think um, is something that it, children tend to pick up I think around the ages of five to four, well I think well, maybe a bit younger than that maybe four four-ish but basically this is the idea that there are other thinking beings outside outside you and so there are experiments and um, famous one is where the, there's the little kid in a room with the researcher who shows them a tube of smarties and says, what, what do you think's inside the tube? And they say, smarties, or sweeties, and something like that, along those lines. And they open up the tube and show that actually there's a pencil inside. And they put the pencil back in the tube, close it up, and then the kid's mum comes in. And they ask the kid, what, what, do, what, what do you think mummy thinks is inside the tube? And the younger kids will say, a pencil. Because they haven't, they, they, they haven't, veins haven't quite developed to the stage at which they're actually uh, recognizing that what knowledge that they have might not be universal, and that there are other beings out there that might have different opinions. And so I think if the Daleks don't have this, that's actually pretty might be a reason why they're so scary and why they're so happy to go around. Uh, well, we certainly know things. the Daleks have no remorse, and they go around killing everyone. And of course, this bring us on to because we're talking about this sort of life support unit that wraps around the Daleks is of course there's also the other sort of enemy of the well it's not sort of one of the other enemies of the Doctor is the Cybermen and again the Cybermen have more than one Genesis story and they redid it actually in the current series as well on and they are people in metal suits is probably another way to put it but that's the idea of augmenting a person to improve them and this is something we kind of do already you might not think of it the same way but when you put someone in a wheelchair you are giving them the ability to move again or if you take it further when you get an Olympic a Paralympic runner where you put mechanical legs on them then you're giving them the ability to run again when they don't have it we don't so much do it on healthy people because of the risks but the idea of 
taking a person and improving them is something that's very true in society today. And that, so with the cybermen, what we're saying is they can make you harder and they can make you live longer. So it can keep you alive and it can also improve their thinking and it can improve their use. But the trouble with the cybermen is that they ended up being used for evil, not used for good. Because, of course, some robotic people running around passing out flowers to the doctor's friends would not make a very good episode. Yeah, it's one of those things where you have to question the better and saying improving people. It's like allow, allow, allowing people to do more stuff. Yeah. But, um, but I, I know a lot of people with disabilities would, would take offence at saying it's, it's improving them by allowing them to do that. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly something I didn't mean to imply, is the idea of you giving someone, facilitating someone to do more. I think it's only when you come to considering taking someone beyond what humanity naturally evolved to, and even then I doubt that's necessarily improving. I think that's more a case of augmenting, and that may, I think in the case of something like Cybermen, the storyline is it's actually become detrimental in them. You know, if you take too much, go too far, the person is no longer human. And what makes you human is a very difficult thing and there's much there's a huge amount of philosophy out there on what that means and what they are and I don't think anyone's got a real answer on that one yeah. okay well I'll leave some f food for thought as it were and we'll um, catch up with you after this next track
Hi, this is Cam FM, and I'm Andrew Holding, and that was Muse with Uprising. Now, we've moved to a segment of the show, which is Weird Science, and also where we cover any questions that have been sent in. So, first I'll just go over the Weird Science, and then we'll get on to the questions, and some of the feedback we've actually got during the show. So, the first thing I've got is that common activities such as sex, coffee... Hmm, there's a comma there, but it shouldn't be there. ...can cause strokes. So, apparently, for some people have done some research, a Dutch study on 250 patients who all suffered from stroke, and they then asked them to write what sort of things they were doing before they got the stroke, in the hazard period, as it's called, and discovered that, apparently, your risk of stroke is increased by 4.3% when you're having sex, or 5.4% when you blow your nose. You know, and also, you should be really careful that if you take part in vigorous physical exercise, that... There's a 7.9 increase in risk for a stroke. Yeah. I think the key thing here is that these are all relative increases in risk, which is quite common in news stories. I'll give you relative increases rather than absolute increases. And I believe that actually a lot of these are inc basically incredibly, incredibly minor compared to actually having high blood pressure generally. Yeah, I mean, the relative increasing is really important because if it's a one in a million chance and it increases by 7%, it's still nothing. Where if it's a uh, 1 in 10 chance and it increases by 7%, that's a big increase. And that's why they should actually, well, there's a unit called a millimort, micromort even, sorry, which is a 1 in a fa million chance that you're going to die. And that's really useful because if something increases something by 10 micromorts, you can actually quantitate that in the sort of probability of how likely you are going to die and thinking about how many people in a room will die. And, um, yeah, I know there's a lot of statisticians who have tried to get that used by newspapers, but they resist it completely. And our second paper is on, rather topically, about gravity. And um, is gravity all relative? And this paper is really interesting because basically they did an experiment where they got you to look at a computer screen and they asked you, is the jar on the computer screen going to fall over or not? And the people basically had to click yes or no. What was interesting was that um, several people couldn't do this, but only when they were sitting on their side. So if you lie down and you're lying side when you look at the computer screen, you find it harder to judge whether something's going to fall over or not. And this has a real implication on balance, because uh, there's obviously there are quite a lot of people who have b balance issues, and by working out what's cause, you know, what positions can have an effect on how you perceive balance it ends up being giving a better insight in that and may become ways to cure it. And the other thing it tells us is how much vision or your ears or other parts are involved in your sort of positioning yourself relative to the world. What I also found quite interesting apparently is kids are very bad at study. So there's another thing that Daleks might not be able to do balance very well. So that's why they need a big tripod. That, that, that's one thing that I always used to wonder about the old Daleks. When they started getting the ability to to go upstairs. They kind of did it by this little force field and they kind of seemed to go up like a step at a time. And so I was just wondering if someone at the top with a long stick would just actually be able to prod the top of the Dalek and just unbalance them sufficiently that they'd just roll back down to the bottom of the stairs again. Well, uh, Daleks have a very low centre of gravity, I believe, because they've got that sort of cone shape. Try pushing over a cone, it's very difficult because the lower the centre of gravity... Mm -hmm the harder you have to get it past tipping point. Yeah, I was just wondering, with the, it's just with the force field underneath them, it's like, is the force field actually all that good at stopping them from tipping? I don't... My, my force field physics isn't very good. <laughs> so, 
going on to our questions, um, these seem to have carried over from last week. The first one was to do with Superman, and can lead really stop his X-ray vision? And I think Michael will agree with me this, that quite likely it would be able to stop X-ray vision, but there are much more serious problems with um, Superman's X-ray vision, which is when you take a photo, you let light into the lens. When you take an X-ray, you emit X-rays on one side and you capture on a field on the other side of the person. But with Superman's eyes, there's no X-rays coming in for his retina to detect, so he wouldn't actually be able to see anything unless someone held an X-ray light up somewhere else in the building. You, you could kind of like hand wave it and say Superman's so fast he can get around to the other side of the person and over, like overtake his own X-rays or something. That but, that might be maybe because he's got laser eyes. He fires out X-rays and has to run around the other side and catch them. That's entirely possible with uh, Superman. Except, except the speeds that he'd have to go to do so. They'd have to, the X-rays would have to be really, really significantly slowed down by the per, by the person going through the person. Yeah, and he would have that. to move at nearly the speed of light. Yeah. But then we know he can go fast enough around the planet to cause it to go back in time. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, yeah. It's, it's like if it feels being a bit picky, picking up things like the X-ray vision when you've got things like that going around. Yeah, well, we, we got to we got to work with it, but yeah, the answer if would is it reasonable that lead would stop his X-ray vision? Yes, lead does stop X-rays. So if you take a photograph of someone behind a lead sheet, the X-rays well it attenuates them. So that's why people wear lead covers when they're using X-rays in hospitals because they don't want to receive too many X-rays because it will cause them horrible mutations and diseases and turn them into a green mutant thing inside a Dalek. So the next question was how does Spider-Man climb up walls? Um, so there's two answers to this. He could either have sticky stuff on his hands but I actually prefer a different answer. It's not really to do with spiders but because um, you don't see any stuff coming out of your hands. These geckos have this thing called well, they, they use a force called the Van der Waals force and the Van der Waals force is um, sort of the least impressive of all the sort of forces we talk about in chemistry but when you have your nucleus with a cloud of electrons around it the electrons could for a tiny tiny moment be on one side more on one side than the other so you end up with a positive charge and negative charge not balanced across the atom and then that can mean the atom next to them see that and then the electrons rush towards the positive charge causing the same uh, split in charge and it crescendos and what this means is you find that certain things will stick together. So noble gases, which are helium and argon and things like that, which shouldn't, should just be an ideal gas. They shouldn't have any force between them at all, really. You find they're a little bit more sticky than they should be. Well, how geckos use this is they have tiny, tiny hairs on their fingertips, which then have even tinier hairs on them. And they slide in between the little grooves and stuff on material, and they can stick to nearly anything. And it's this van der Waals force that's doing it. So there's no glue, it's completely dry. And I actually believe if you have a lot of money, you can buy a synthetic version of it's called Ghetto Tape, which will stick to almost anything, and it sticks really, really well. It's interesting how they have to um, peel their peel their um, not their feet off of surfaces in order so that they're only breaking contact of a little bit of it at a time, because otherwise it'd be really inconvenient for the geckos if they stuck their feet to something. And then we're just stuck there and can never get them off. Yeah, a gecko only can make one step in its life when it's stuck there. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we got one bit of feedback, which was on the um, general relativity and the frame-dragging effect we were talking about with how the Earth rotates, that they can measure the effect it has on the bodies orbiting it. Well, the example is that if you had um, a sheet of rubber and you put a bowling ball on it, 
and you um, then rotate it perpendicular to the sheet of rubber, it would drag the rubber around it. You can see it twisting around it. Um, you can see it distorting as long as there's some friction there. Another way to do it is just put a tissue on a desk and then put your finger in the middle and rotate it and you'll see the tissue get dragged around it and you'll see the similar effect. Uh, and the bit closest to your finger twists faster than the bit which is further away. Yeah, yeah. advantages of um, broadcasting in University City when people are revising for general relativity exams there. So yeah, that came in from Jasmine. So thank you for that and um, do keep listening.
Well, I hope you all turn that up loud. And that was Orbital, of course, doing their version of the Doctor Who theme. Uh, a little interesting fact about that is when they did that live at Glastonbury, they actually had Matt Smith on stage. I'm not sure if he actually played any instruments, but he certainly joined in the fun. Oh, I'd love to do that. Big Doctor Who fan. <laughs> I, I, I'm quite worried when I discovered that Matt Smith is younger than me. Uh, he's just a little bit older than me, but um, Karen Gillan, who plays um, Amy Pond, is younger than me. So I missed my chance there, because the Doctor is, is constantly only getting younger these days, um, with each regeneration. The next topic we're going to bring up is, well, the TARDIS again, but this time how it goes invisible. Yeah, it's something that um, it's done very rarely in the old series, but um, did it in the mo the two-parter at the start of the most recent series and invisibility and sort of like invisibility cloaks like in Harry Potter is sort of a big thing at the moment there is actually a lot of research going into this sort of things and what people are doing using are what are called metamaterials where we're not just looking at the overall structure of a material people are looking at just ex like exactly the positions of the atoms in the material and how they can engineer this, put little impurities in in certain places, implant them in, so that the atoms move to s the atoms around that move to sh slightly different positions, and you can then create a cloak where if you put shine a certain wavelength of light at it or any electromagnetic radiation, so like radio waves or microwaves or something like that, it will actually guide it precisely around um, an area or volume and it will emerge from your material at the other side as if it had just passed straight through whatever it is that you're trying to hide and they're just starting to get this working for small very very small ranges of wavelengths and I think they've just about managed to do it in 3D now although I don't quote me on that I know there's definitely quite a few 2D so but I think a 3D one has just been developed how big an object are they currently hiding with this is it a peanut yeah at the moment I think it's even smaller than that I think I think you're looking um, I think you'd, you'd be lucky to get a millimeter out of it wow so n well the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than the out so we can make a very small TARDIS. Yeah, but the, the key thing at the moment is that this is only going to block one particular wavelength of light, so you, you might be able to um, disguise your ship so that um, a radar system wouldn't notice it, but someone could look at it and see it's there, because it would work, work on completely different wavelengths. And the next thing I've got down on my list to talk about is, now this I think is a really interesting one, is the Weeping Angels from which was, I think, one of the best episodes of the current Doctor Who, Blink. And these apparently have the property that when you look at them, they are quantumly locked, which I know itself isn't exactly hard science, but it does have some interesting relations to some genuine science. Yeah, the, the current um, formulation of quantum mechanics and the way, the way it's interpreted suggests that there's a role of, the, of a, an observer in a system. Now, the observer doesn't necessarily need to be an actual person it could just be a bit of experimental apparatus um, but this actually changes what's going on in your quantum system when I'm talking about quantum systems what I'm mostly meaning is something very 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 small um, so that you're like talking on the, on the, on the size of atoms well because it, it tends to blur out if you get bigger than that um, but um, excuse me if you um, 
if you have a quantum system, one of the key attributes of a quantum system over what we call a classical one, which is just what we're used to in everyday life, is it can be in what's called a superposition of states. So it can be in the state of being, say, in the le left of somewhere or being to the right of somewhere. So this would be the commonly used but badly explained Schrodinger's cat? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's a thought experiment that actually was originally um, thought of to try and prove how quantum physics was a load of, load of nonsense because it sounded like something that was that just couldn't happen but so now it's but now it's something that people actually like ponder and think about the philosophical implications of and try to wonder where you go between the quantum world and your cat and where the boundary is and that's actually something that would be very useful to know for us to be able to link all of our the, the fun interesting and really kind of like out of this world stuff we do on the quantum level to the classical everyday level that we live in so yeah so with schrodinger's cat what we're saying is in a normal world if you put a cat in a box and you give it some poison it either and then you wait five minutes and open the box it's either dead or alive um you don't get that you, you and it will be dead at the point it takes the poison in a quantum system until the observer opens a box it's not just it's one or the other it is actually in both states and that's, of course, ludicrous for a cat, but that's exactly how the quantum systems work. And um, don't try this on your cat, please. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's very much the question is, where's this boundary? Um, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting one. And I've, heard, I've heard loads of random theories about how quantum effects can explain lots of things that we don't yet fully understand. And, um, but the, the problem is, if you start doing that, you go, well, where if that's the case, even if you're quantum physics does actually make any sense which some of the times it doesn't in when people are claiming this um wh where does it where does it stop being quantum and start being classical physics and uh yeah it's something that we still don't really understand yeah i mean there is a huge amount of evidence so we're not sitting here saying that quantum mechanics doesn't work it's just when you blur the, it's when you bring make the system larger and larger and larger the quantum effects get blurred out and uh, a great example of how weird the quantum and classical world is is when you look at something like a photon, which can be either a wave or a particle. Yeah, there's actually um, a uh, single photon experiment, a single particle of light um, that connect, can show this role of the observer. Because so, if you send light through two slits, you can look at it classically and look at it as a wave and it will interfere and you'll get an interference pattern and if you did the same with waves coming into a harbour wall with two holes in it you'll see exactly the same pattern in the waves in the sea yeah. but um, if you then say well what happens if I put a single particle of light through it then w what happens there and you find that even though you've got a single particle if you repeat this many many times you actually get the same sort of pattern as if it was a full wave going through but if you manage to set up your experiment so that you could tell which of the two slits the particle went through, you instantly destroy this pattern and it changes. Anyway, so as exciting as that is, I think we've actually got to leave that there. So I hope you'll join us next week where I'll have Will Thompson here and we'll be discussing computers and hackers in movies. And um, we'll also be talking about anything from HAL 2000 to The Terminator. And he'll be bringing on his nerdcore to enjoy with us.